Our text is the Old Testament lesson from Jonah chapter 3. We last left uh, the prophet Jonah, the prodigal prophet. Um, We left him after his death and resurrection ordeal, uh, washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean. This was a few weeks ago. And here, at chapter 3, verse 1, the book is a lot like a movie where, you know, you just hit rewind or you hit that button that says play from the beginning and you go back and you do that and that's what happens here and we get an almost word-for-word replay of the opening of the book, right? So it's like the second take. God was not happy with how the first take went, right? And so we get this second take here. And we'll look at it under the three headings that are there on the outline in your bulletin. Uh, Jonah's repentance, Nineveh's repentance, and God's repentance. So I have a lot to say about repentance. Um, So first, Jonah's repentance. Now again, going back to the beginning, you can only imagine, right, we spoke of this, the horror that would have filled his mind when he heard that initial call, right, go and preach the judgment of God upon the city of Nineveh. I said then, I think, that it would, be, it would be akin to being called in like October of 2001 to go and preach to the Taliban regime in Kabul, Afghanistan. Not that the people are all evil, but the regime is horrid. Right? Assyria was a mortal enemy viewed with this sort of visceral hatred by any faithful Israelite. I documented some of their many, many war crimes in the opening sermon in this series, so I'm not going to go over that here. But we can understand why Jonah would flee, right? It's perfectly reasonable. I know a slew of people that won't live in a blue state, right? Much less go to Nineveh. Have you seen the taxes in that state and the secular government in that state? Right? Right, Jonah, who wants the church plant in Nineveh? The PCA can't get people to plant churches north of the Mason-Dixon line. Talk to any young church planter, they want to plant the next PCA church in Birmingham. Or west of the Mississippi, for that matter. So, Jonah, of course, refuses to go. And again, it's hard not to fault him. I mean, it's hard to fault him. He boards this ill-fated ship. You know the story. He's thrown overboard by the sailors. He gets swallowed up. He repents. He's in there for three days and three nights. The Lord hears his cry, mercifully spits him up on the seashore. And that's the end of chapter 2. That's where we were about four or five weeks ago. And that brings us to this text. And in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, you get this very tactful statement. The word of the Lord came to Jonah A second time. A second time. It's as if God is saying, now let's try this again. Right? This is the only prophet in the Hebrew canon who actually flees his calling. And what we have here is he's mercifully getting a do-over. And notice this, because this is what I want us to see at the outset. The Lord graciously makes no reference to his failure. And Jonah's failure was epic. He didn't just say no. He didn't just resist. He turned and fled and boarded a ship and 
went in the opposite direction, right? There's no reference to this. God here is like the father in the prodigal son. God is kind. He does not chide Jonah. He does not remind him of his failures. He does not browbeat his children. He does not treat us, thankfully, as our sins deserve. That's wonderful. Where would we all be, Jonah's all of us, without second and third and 17th chances? Where would we be? Right? Praise God that, as Paul says, and you see it, you see the gospel right here in the first verse, right? That it is God's kindness, his persistent grace, his generosity, which leads us to repentance. Right? There are very few people who are ever argued or insulted or mocked into repentance. Right? And what works for you and for me is going to work for your children, your spouse, your friends, your family, your co-workers. Namely, kindness and generosity. And in the case of Jonah, he's not only pardoned without a lecture, he's restored to his prophetic office. And God says, I'm going to put my word in your mouth again. You'll be the mouthpiece of God. And we see that word in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the message that I will give you. And Jonah repents. At least as far as we can tell, outwardly, he repents. You see it in action. The text says he arose and goes and obeys the word of the Lord. He was fleeing, right? He kept going down, down, down. Now he arises in obedience. I mean, nothing in the fundamental social political situation has changed, right? The word that he received in chapter 1 was utterly unreasonable. And now he's learned that God does not negotiate the terms of his call. God wants us to not be like Jonah, right? The, the psalm which says, don't be like the horse which I need, you know, needs a bridle. Right? Be teachable. Receive counsel. Right? Jonah has learned that God is not going to negotiate the terms of his call. And he obeys this call here. But it's still just as dangerous just as preposterous and just as counterintuitive and against his deep instincts as it was in chapter 1. But he goes. Now we'll see later that he hasn't actually inwardly repented either yet. Right? It's a lot like your child maybe doing their homework and they, 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 it's not done well and you make them do it again and they don't really want to do it and so they do it over and it's a little bit better. Right? That's a form of repentance. And that's kind of the form of Jonah's repentance. All right, I'm, all right, I'm getting the do-over, so I'm going. Right? But what's behind the do-over, right? God's insistence that his word must be made to impinge, to bear down on the brutal realities of the real world. Like real cities, real empires real political and military powers, even on the vilest of God's own enemies. Right? And so Jonah, Jonah has to learn, look, I want you to run to, to these things, not away from them, to them. And it's interesting how God views Nineveh. Right? It's called here 
the great city. Some translations call it the very large city. But it's clearly a great city to God. In fact, it's translated that way in some texts. So what's being referred to is not just that it's big. It is big. But its influence, its grandeur, its strategic importance, right? It's kind of like New York City or L.A. or Chicago would be in America, right? You don't win the cities. You don't win the culture. They're critical drivers. You can, you can see that in Paul's missionary strategy. Just watch where he goes, So the name of the city of Nineveh is on the lips of God at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. God esteems it a great city. And he keeps calling it a great city. He cares about it. In spite of the fact that the city is a center, the epicenter of an empire which violently oppresses his own people. This is really an astounding thing, and it's incomprehensible to Jonah. Right? Because Jonah's a counter who divides the world up into good people and bad people and white hats and black hats. And he's got to learn about God. So at the end of the book, and hopefully you know, we'll see this next week in chapter 4, at the end of the book, God speaks of his pity on the more than 120,000 people in the city. You know the story, right? He says these people don't know their right hand from their left. And he even speaks of his pity for the cattle. Like he even loves the animal life of his enemies. And these cattle will make an appearance here in this text a little bit later. So Jonah is learning about what we should call the Catholicity, the universality, right? The scandalous wideness of the love and mercy of God. The tenderness he has to all he has made. And this is on top of what Jesus tells us the Heavenly Father does in his common grace, right? This is a redemptive proclamation that's going to come to Nineveh, but we know that we are to imitate our Father in heaven who causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust, right? Who shows his kindness, Jesus says, to the ungrateful and to his enemies. This is what Jonah's being confronted with. And we must say that the rest of the book will make it clear that he hasn't wholeheartedly repented. He's a lot like the prodigal coming home but he carries around a lot of this older brother's legalism and resentment and peevishness. Right? He has not been inwardly changed. His heart is not the heart of his father in heaven who loves and shows generosity and kindness to his enemies. This is foreign to him. Now, in this sense, he's like us. Right? His repentance zigs and zags. It's one step up and two steps back. Someone famously said, we have to repent even of our repentance. There are no pilgrims whose journey is a straight line of progress. Right? Repentance isn't like that. Right? The, the, uh, the antibodies re- you know, produced by repentance, right? they don't hang around for a long time. You have to keep repenting. Which is why Calvin could say the Christian life is a perpetual cross. By which he meant the Christian life is lived in the mood of repentance. 
What else could it be? Because we live by the word of God. And that word comes to us, and what does it do? It slays us and makes us alive. And then slays us and makes us alive. It overthrows us. This is a joyful way to live, but it's a decentered joy. It's not a joy which leaves us unmolested. So, in verse 4, Jonah goes into the city. It's a day's journey into the belly of another beast. And he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Five Hebrew words. That's That's the sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's clearly a call to repentance, an implied call to repentance. He calls out this threat of judgment. Now, one wonders here, I mean, does he do it with glee? I mean, after all, we know, we're going to learn, he wants them to be overthrown. So I think we can safely say he's not doing this with tears. And the question the text places before us is this. How will this great city respond? I mean, how would any city respond, then or now? With laughter or with disdain? With indifference? Oh, another, another end of the world prediction. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. With swords? With bloodshed? And that brings me to the second point. Nineveh's repentance. It turns out that Jonah's preaching, it's startlingly effective. If we did not know that repentance was a gift of God, we would scarcely believe what happens here. We're told simply in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. That's it. And then you might think, all right, well, they believed God. But there's this very thorough, it's five verses long description of the repentance that takes place in the city. I mean, this is extremely rare in Hebrew literature that this much space would be spent on this event. The whole city is deeply affected. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, all of them. So clearly this repentance that's occurring in Nineveh, it's a time of of social healing. A time of reconciliation with their neighbors as well. Repentance is never just a vertical thing between you and God. Repentance toward God requires repentance toward men. And the king, this is in verse 6, the king hears about this. He descends from his throne. He takes his place as a penitent. Takes off his royal robes, covers himself in the, in the symbols of mourning, sackcloth, ashes, right? This is no repentance in word only, right? This is embodied repentance, personal, public, corporate, political repentance. At least to an observer, that's what it looks like. That's how it's reported. In fact, the word for repentance, for turning, the Hebrew word to turn, is used four times in three verses here. And what happens next is this same repentant king, the king of the city, he publishes this decree to be spread abroad through the city in verse 7. And here's how it reads in part. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast 
herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. I mean, the solidarity here, the civic solidarity of the fast is stark. It includes, notice, man and beast. Even the animals are called to fast. These are the animals which, in addition to the people, are the object of God's pity. Never trust a prophet who doesn't love animals. They're created on the same day that man was created on. And in our mechanized age, we can forget that with us, we share with them a kind of mutual dependence on God for our life and our breath and our food. Right? And the sin of man has exacted a brutal toll on these innocent animals. With us, they are subject to the curse which lies on the groaning creation. And here, alongside the, the city, they join in the fast. In fact, verse, verse 8, both man and beast are covered in sackcloth. I guess you get that at PetSmart for your dog, the sackcloth. Both man and beast. And, and even more surprising than that, and I think the NIV mutes this, but they are both summoned to call out mightily to God. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, most of the creatures here below. No, right? It's praise him, all creatures here below. So the city's been awakened to pray, right? Not as the sailors, each to his own God, but to Jonah's God, man and beast. And by the way, this language that embraces the animal kingdom is not unprecedented in the Hebrew Bible. During a time of drought, the prophet Joel depicts the beast as groaning and being perplexed and dismayed and even crying to the Lord because the water brooks are dried up. And the psalmist, you may remember this in the Psalms, uh, speaks of the young lions who roar for their prey and seek their food from the hand of God. So the whole city has become a kind of Noah's Ark where man and beast share first in repentance and then deliverance from the calamity which is to come. Right? Repentance puts you in the ark of the church. Right? In the ark of the church so you can be delivered from the calamity which is to come. Do not harden your hearts then. So notice, back to the, to the scene here in Nineveh. In addition to fasting and sackcloth, and in addition to prayer, the people are called to bring forth the fruits of repentance. Notice the text says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Violence here, the word for violence is something like what moderns would call human rights violations. The prophets, you can see this in Amos, but the prophets do this everywhere. They call the nations around Israel to repentance based on what they know. The nations know because they're image bearers of God. Right? They have the law of God written in their hearts. They know the natural law. They know the moral order in its basic contours. And so God calls on them to repent of their crimes against the moral order. 
So what's happening here in this repentance is not just that God is saying to Assyria, you have to repent of your imperialism, although I think that's involved. It's more than that. This is a kind of violence and fraud and greed and oppression and exploitation of their own neighbors in the city. Right? That's why I said there's a kind of national healing, uh, urban healing going on here. So we might put it this way. Preaching wrath, preaching escape the judgment which is to come, 40 days and you will be overthrown, and doing justice entail one another. Right? Right? Preaching wrath and doing justice entail one another. Jonah does not merely call for the Ninevites to make a personal decision for Yahweh. He calls for them to transform their city. He calls for evil to stop and violence to come to an end. That is part of his gospel proclamation. So this is a very robust kind of public repentance. Now, I've made some comments about Jonah's repentance. Lord willing, next week, we'll say some things about Nineveh's repentance. But for now, I want to make a a slightly different point. I want you to see how this this text functions if you're reading it as an Israelite. right? When, When God describes this level of repentance in detail, it has the function of warning Israel. Israel, which after repeated warnings from the prophets, refuses to repent, right? The text is a rebuke to Israel's rebellion. The repentance of the Gentiles is designed to provoke the Jews to jealousy, right? So, tragically, again, one of the great themes of the book of Jonah, the pagan Gentiles do what the covenant people are supposed to be doing. Here, they listen to the word and they repent, Israel's not doing this. Just a couple of decades after Jonah's ministry, Israel's going to be overthrown and go into exile at the hands of this very Assyrian empire. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And their lack of repentance tragically continues all the way down through their history and culminates in the generation which rejected Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah. And to, to them, Jesus says, and this was in the gospel lesson. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, meaning Jesus' generation, and they will condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Notice how similar, right? Jesus' preaching ministry is to Jonah's. Jonah's ministry is 40 days and you'll be overthrown. Jesus' preaching ministry can be summarized this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something else uh, remarkable to notice about this king is he realizes right away that there's no guarantee that the disaster is going to be averted. Like, he doesn't think that repentance is a charm, right, or some sort of lever to control God. Look at verse 9. He says this, Who knows? Who knows? God might turn and relent and in compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. It's a perceptive statement, which he does kind of intuitively. He believes now that Jonah's God is his only hope. But but who knows? Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he won't. We've, We've done what we can do. We've repented. And so again, he's learned something about God that Jonah has yet to fully see. 
And that brings me to the, to the third point, perhaps to some, maybe more shocking than the other two points, and that's God's repentance. That's God's repentance. When God saw all this, the text says, he relented or turned. That's the Hebrew word for repent. He turned from the disaster that he said he would do to them. He didn't do it. So here's how it goes. They turned and said, who knows? God might turn. When God saw that they turned, he turned. Right? Those are the four uses of the word here. And that's the sequence. It's quite remarkable. God repents. And of course, the scriptures speak about God repenting in numerous places. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this. It's a topic of its own. Um, I'll address it very briefly, but I want to make sure we don't miss the point of it in this passage. Because there's no great metaphysical argument trying to be made here by the prophet. Right. Um, all, of this, all that this repenting means is that God changed his stated course of action. That might be anticlimactic for some of you, but that's what it means. Now, of course, we have to hold together. God is immutable. God doesn't change. God's eternal decree always comes to pass. And yet, he interacts with secondary causes. And thus, we can talk of events as genuinely free. Contingent, meaning they may happen, they may not. How this can be, right? the answer to that is very simple, I don't know. We are, but the Reformed have always held that's what Scripture teaches. And it's a great, great mystery. Right? It's a great mystery. And so this reality that God is unchangeable and yet he takes seriously human actions and responses to his word, this is just a basic truism in biblical prophecy. It's not always explicit, but it's always implied. And the key to understanding it is in Jeremiah 18, which I believe we looked at in the first sermon in this series. But in Jeremiah 18, the Lord says this. Notice, if at any time, not just during Jeremiah's ministry, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And the same thing in the other direction. If, he, if God says he's going to do good and they do evil, then he'll, he won't, he'll relent of the good. So, prophetic announcements like Jonah's announcement. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Right? They are not history written in advance. What they are saying is, this is what will happen if you do not respond properly. This is what will happen if things keep going this way. So when we speak of God repenting, we don't mean that God changes his mind the way we change his mind. He's always immutable and unchanging. But it just means he changes his stated course of action. He looks at what happens. And he has compassion on Nineveh. So here's the point of God's repentance, right? Um, You can kind of get off into various speculation about God's repentance, but this is the point in this text. It is a sign of his mercy, of his compassion, right? And particularly, get this, it's a sign of his compassion and his mercy to his Gentile enemies. If God did not repent, we would be consumed. We would be consumed. And so what we have in the text is this vivid picture of the gospel, 
of the mercy of God which is poured out and come to us Gentiles. So the redemptive history of God's mighty works, it, it looks like this. Jonah dies. He's resurrected from the belly of the beast. And what happens? What happens? The good news goes out to the city of Nineveh. So also, after the death and resurrection of Christ, what he himself calls the sign of Jonah, the gospel flows out to the Gentiles, to all the Ninevehs of the world, to you and to me. Right? The gospel flows out to the cities. It's really quite straightforward. And this gospel, again, this gospel entails preaching the wrath which is to come. Right? Without, without, if you take that out, if you take the end out, the wrath which is to come in the final judgment, you have no gospel. There's no way it can be excised. So preaching wrath is not mean. Right? God loves Nineveh. Right? He esteems the city. But his message to it is, I'm going to overthrow you. So preaching wrath is an act of mercy. Right? It's an instrument of God's kindness. Because, because God is committed to shattering our recalcitrant blindness. Right? Our hardened blindness. Another way to simply get this is this. You will be overthrown, Nineveh, or God will overthrow you. Right? We all have sort of two choices. We can let the gospel overthrow us, slay us, and make us alive. Because that's what the gospel does. It overthrows us. It places us into Christ's death and into his resurrection and reestablishes us. Right? And so if we are not overthrown by the gospel, we are going to be overthrown by the wrath of God. So when we speak of God repenting here, we mean this. God used to look and say, this is Ephesians 2, you are objects of wrath, children of wrath. But now he looks at us as his beloved justified by the sign of Jonah in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. But it is a wonderful gospel because it is what we need. We need do-overs and second and third and 17th chances. And they flow from this gospel. And all who have believed should then, like Nineveh, bring forth the fruits of repentance. Right? Jonas preaches a lot like John the Baptist preaching in that sense. It brings forth the fruits of repentance. So we're set now in the mercies of God. You, you stand by the flood of God's mercy. I stand by that mercy. We stand by that mercy. And then we're called to this Christian life, which is a life of perpetual turning, continuous repentance. Again, when we hear continuous repentance, we might think grimly, but it's not grim. There's nothing grim about it. This is transformational, right? This is God conforming us to the image of his son. As I said before, it's full of joy, but it's a kind of decentered joy because you're always being slain and made alive. But we have to turn in continuous repentance to the God who in mercy has turned or relented of the wrath which we deserved. One cannot cultivate properly, I don't think, our debt to God and the infinite oceanic depths of his mercy if one does not understand the wrath from which we've been delivered. 
And God has delivered it by bearing it away in the person of his son. Eventually, there will be a Jonah who goes into the heart of a modern Nineveh, right? And gets crucified there for the sake of the city's sins and the sins of the world, right? So God can bear away wrath in the person of his son that he might show mercy to all, right? That he might show mercy to all. So if you get one thing out of this sermon, and here I'll speak to the younger people as well, get this, right? It is the kindness and mercy of God which leads us to repentance, right? Praise God for that mercy and kindness. Amen.